Murder by poisoning has been a popular method of getting rid of someone for centuries. As life insurance policies became more commonplace, arsenic was given the nickname the inheritance powder. And who would have easier access to other, more exotic poisons than people in the medical field? Like maybe a nurse. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm Lori Morrison, your host and private investigator. Let's tackle another story from the world of true crime and see what spiritual and safety lessons that we can find there. I believe that every Christian's calling is to be what I call a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around because we'll talk about how you can do just that. This is season four, episode three. Our book this week is An Almost Perfect Murder by Gary C. King. Let's investigate why it was only almost perfect. Kathy Augustine was a force to be reckoned with. She served in the Nevada Assembly, the Nevada Senate, and was Nevada's first female state controller. Kathy was even a finalist to become treasurer of the United States under President George W. Bush. That nomination was derailed when she was accused of violating state ethics laws during her 2002 re-election campaign. As a result of the investigation into those allegations, Kathy was impeached by the Nevada Assembly, becoming the first Nevada state official to actually be impeached. After being tried by the Nevada Senate, Kathy was censured, but allowed to resume office. This was a really, really stressful time in Kathy's life, and it was only made worse by the fact that she was having trouble in her fourth marriage. Kathy was described as having what we'll call a difficult personality, as she, of course, called herself tough. But like any of us, she longed to be loved. Her first two marriages were short-lived, but her third marriage to Charles Augustine seemed like it was going to work out. It was during her time with Charles that Kathy first ran for political office. Some people saw her as an absolutely brilliant politician, but others said she was an opportunist who used underhanded tactics to get elected. As you can only imagine, this put a lot of strain on this third marriage of Kathy's. But before it could end in another divorce, her husband Charles suffered a massive stroke. He spent several weeks in the hospital before passing away. His last days were made easier by an attentive male nurse named Chaz Higgs. Chaz would soon become Kathy Augustine's fourth husband. Didn't see that coming, did you? Here's another twist. The almost perfect murder of this book's title isn't about the death of Charles Augustine. But before we get to that, let's go back to Kathy's story. Chaz Higgs was a former army medic, bodybuilder, and quite a charmer. Kathy married him three weeks after Charles died. Nobody, not even close family members or friends, knew about the wedding until after it was accomplished. Both Kathy and Chaz were criticized for jumping into this marriage so quickly, but they didn't care. At least one of them should have. Their quick leap into wedded bliss apparently meant Chaz didn't fully appreciate how very busy his politically powerful wife really was. And it wasn't long before the two lovebirds were at each other's throats, at least figuratively speaking. Co-workers at the hospital noticed that Chaz didn't speak as glowingly of his new bride as he used to. In June of 2006, the local news was filled with the story of Darren Roy Mack, 
who was charged with stabbing his estranged wife to death. Chaz told a co-worker that Mac had been stupid to stab his wife. Chaz told the co-worker that if he needed to kill somebody, he'd use a drug called succinylcholine because it's almost undetectable in an autopsy. Now, I get it. He's a nurse, and so he knows a lot more about that stuff than you or I would. Of course, unless we listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, right? But who says something like that? Especially since one of his coworkers said that when they would ask him if he needed help with anything, you know, like coworkers do, you cover for each other. He would respond, you can get rid of my wife for me. There was also a female coworker who had gotten a rose from Chaz for her birthday. This led to the two starting to talk more when they were at work, and it wasn't long before Chaz told this woman that he hated Kathy. Then flirtatious emails were flying back and forth between the two. Chaz continued to complain about Kathy, saying that she was controlling and vindictive. He told his coworker that he was going to leave Kathy and they could be together. Now, the flaw in his plan was that Kathy was the main breadwinner for this family, and she supported his freewheeling spending. On Saturday, July 8, 2006, less than three years since they'd gotten married, Chaz called 911 to report that his wife wasn't breathing. He told the dispatcher that he was performing CPR on Kathy. She remembered that he seemed so very calm. The paramedics arrived, and they took over efforts to revive Kathy. And they thought he seemed very, very calm, considering the circumstances as well. In fact, he was so calm that on the ambulance ride to the hospital, he read a newspaper. Chaz was calm with the police and hospital personnel. He was calm for the next three days as Kathy lay in a coma, presumably due to a sudden heart attack. He was calm on July 11th, when Kathy passed away. He might have been less calm if he'd known that the police had received a tip from another former co-worker who was concerned that Kathy had been poisoned. Police began looking into how plausible it really was that Chaz could have access to drugs that could produce symptoms that might just be mistaken for a heart attack. The tipster had mentioned Chaz's comment that if he needed to kill someone, he'd use succinylcholine. Now, this is not a drug that's checked for on routine tox screens. So it's a good thing that they knew to ask technicians at the FBI to look for it. Because when they did, they found it. Within a couple of months, Chaz had moved in with family, since Kathy's will left nearly all of her assets to her daughter. In September, police arrested Chaz and charged him with Kathy's murder. Kathy's stepson from her marriage to Charles Augustine started to wonder if Chaz could possibly have poisoned his father. Not really a far-fetched assumption, given Kathy and Chaz's quick marriage after Charles passed. I really learned a lot studying this case. Like the fact that it's hard enough to detect succinylcholine in a recently deceased person like Kathy, but it's almost impossible to find traces of it in a corpse. Despite exhuming Charles Augustine's body, nothing was found that could prove that Chaz had done anything to him. At this point, authorities weren't 100% sure that they were going to be able to prove he'd done anything to Kathy either. Let me give you just a little background on succinylcholine. It really is a very useful drug when it's administered properly. It temporarily paralyzes a person so that medical personnel can intubate and give supportive breathing to that patient. It's very fast acting, and the person begins to lose the ability to raise their head, to swallow, and eventually 
to breathe. Other drugs are usually given with it to make the patient unaware of what's going on. Now, without that, and without being given supportive breathing until the drug wears off, the person slowly suffocates while being completely aware of everything that's happening to them. Could someone, a husband, really be that cruel? It was time to start Chaz's trial and find out. The defense's strategy seemed, in large part, to be trying to discredit the testing that found the succinylcholine. And that was a good idea because it was a very complicated job to forensically do those tests. So the experts on each side of the aisle battled over whether or not those tests had been done correctly and whether they really found what they said they found. No one saw Chaz take any of the drug from the hospital, so it was important to show that at least he could have done so very easily, which is a really scary thought when you think about it. Wouldn't you want medical personnel to have to account for all of the dangerous substances they handled, and especially that they administered? Apparently, in this particular hospital, at that particular time, nurses could swipe in to show that they had taken some sort of drug or medication from storage but it didn't necessarily track which one or how much. It didn't help the defense when the prosecution called to the stand a woman who'd been Chaz's supervisor. She recounted a conversation with him where he said that if he didn't have a daughter in Las Vegas, he'd kill his wife and throw her body down a mine shaft. Now look, we've all been mad at our spouse or a friend or a coworker, right? But how many of us actually told someone that we wanted to kill them and then decided we'd go into detail about how we would gruesomely do that. And remember, this is the second person Chaz has said something like this to. Another witness for the prosecution testified that Chaz changed the account that his paycheck was direct deposited into the day before Kathy's medical emergency. The dispatcher who took Chaz's 911 call told the jury how calm Chaz had seemed when he called to say that he needed some help because his wife was not breathing. If my spouse was not breathing, I'd be a mess. I'll just tell you. So hopefully I could hold it together long enough to make sure 911 knew what I needed and where I was. But I, I don't care how much training I had. I don't think that I could have been calm. Paramedics then testified to that very same thing. And they added what I found to be a very interesting fact. Chaz claimed that he had been giving Kathy CPR. But when they arrived, Kathy was lying on the bed. Now, a trained nurse like Chaz is going to know that to get the best compressions, you're supposed to move the patient to a firm surface like the floor. He talks about he's so calm because he's trained so well. Wouldn't you have been trained well enough to know that? An ER nurse who had been on duty the morning Kathy had been brought in testified that Kathy had not been administered succinylcholine by anyone at the hospital. More witnesses testified that Chaz didn't seem particularly disturbed that his wife was in the hospital fighting for her life. Chaz's co-worker that he exchanged those flirtatious emails with testified that Kathy had found out about their supposedly innocent romance and had gotten the woman fired. She also told the jury that she had told Chaz that as long as he was a married man, their relationship would never go any further than those emails. The defense, of course, argued that context was everything, which to a certain extent I do agree, but you can only explain away so many things with context. 
And of course, they had alternate theories as to why Chaz had appeared as he did, said what he did, and acted the way that he did, which is a common defense strategy. What wasn't typical was when the defense called to the stand Chaz's twin brother. Now, Kathy's story was sadly and unfairly for her starting to sound kind of like a made-for-TV movie with, you know, this sudden plot twist of a defendant with a twin who's going to testify for him. Chaz's brother really couldn't offer much more than the observation that Kathy and his brother's marriage seemed good at first and that he should have encouraged Chaz to leave when it went bad. The defense even called a clinical psychologist to try to explain Chaz's unusual demeanor during Kathy's medical crisis. But when the prosecution got its turn to cross-examine the doctor, the prosecutor wanted to know what the definition of a sociopath was. It really went downhill from there. The prosecutor asked if the doctor's opinion of Chaz Higgs would change if he knew that the day before Kathy stopped breathing, Chaz signed up for her retirement plan as the beneficiary for her benefits upon her death. The doctor said he hadn't known that. Chaz himself decided that he would be the last witness for his defense. He spoke of his armed forces and medical training and how they made him into someone who always maintained focus in an emergency, no matter who was involved. He talked about Kathy's political troubles and how they changed her. He defended his comments about wanting to kill Kathy as just merely venting. He was simply going to leave Kathy. That's why he opened that new account, coincidentally, right before her medical crisis. And he claimed not to know nearly as much about succinylcholine as people were saying that he did. Then right before he was due to be cross-examined, Chaz attempted suicide. His injuries turned out to be not life-threatening. And his attorney explained that it wasn't guilt that motivated Chaz, but the desire to join Kathy. When the trial resumed, the prosecutor asked Chaz about his profile on an online dating site. He asked about other emails to other nurses, asking them to run away with him, especially the one where Chaz asked for videos where the woman had a little less clothing on. Circumstantial evidence? Yes. Enough to convince a jury to convict? Yes. Chaz was sentenced to life in prison, but with the possibility of parole. He appealed, but his conviction was upheld. Kathy's been gone for more than 16 years now. Let's make sure her story lives on as a tribute to another woman who did not deserve the fate she got when all she wanted was to be loved. Would you like to get a sneak peek into next week's episode? I'll be interviewing Candace Reyes who is an author, speaker, and educator, as well as being the founder of HerWell, a ministry that serves survivors of unhealthy sexual relationships as they overcome the fear of their past and heal mentally, physically, and spiritually. HerWell offers counseling services, medical care, self-defense courses, and so much more. So you want to be sure that you don't miss next week's episode. Now, Let's dive into our scripture for this week. Let's investigate some of what biblical hero David had to say in Psalm 35, verses 4 through 6. And this is from the NIV translation. May those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May those who plot my ruin be turned back in dismay. May they be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. May their path be dark and slippery, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. 
David seemed to be in a pretty dark place as he wrote this psalm. Saul was persecuting him, his so-called friends were plotting against him, and the people of Israel weren't being too terribly supportive. But what I want to focus on here is how David is bringing his issues to God rather than trying to fix them all himself. He's not being aggressive or violent toward anybody. He's content to leave that in God's hands and let God handle it how he will. David doesn't ask for his enemies to die, just to be driven away. He does want the angel of the Lord to pursue them. But again, he's leaving any kind of vengeance to a divine power. David had the right perspective on solving his problems. And as we saw in today's case, not so much with Chaz Higgs. Even if we believe Chaz's perspective, and I'm not necessarily saying we should, even if Kathy had treated him terribly, he never, ever should have done what he did. But we also have no idea if Chaz ever claimed to be a believer. I think that a lot of times we seem to expect non-believers to behave as though they have the same moral parameters that we do. And that's not very realistic. And when we really stop and think about it, do we always behave in ways that are consistent with what we say we believe? Poison comes in a lot of different forms. In the message translation, Proverbs 18.21 says, Words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. I don't know about you, but when I read those words, I was pretty convicted. You know, we might not use succinylcholine to poison anybody like Chaz did. But what about the words we choose? Are we giving life? Or are we spreading deadly poison? Kathy Augustine's life mattered. It shouldn't have physically been taken from her by Chaz Higgs, but the value of her memory shouldn't be taken away by criticizing things like her multiple marriages or her reputation as a difficult boss and maybe even a dirty politician. She still didn't deserve what happened to her. What I want us to do is to share her legacy as a warning to other women to be so very, very careful who we trust. And we all need to take our time getting to know somebody before we just give them our hearts. So let's all stop and think. We've all got a circle of influence. We've got family members, we've got friends, neighbors, coworkers, folks at church. We have people who will listen to us. And we have people who need to hear some of the lessons that we learn from the things we talk about here on The Unlovely Truth. So who do you know that is maybe jumping into a relationship a little too quickly and you're really concerned about them? Maybe not that they're going to be involved with someone who would murder them, but maybe just someone who wouldn't treat them the way they should be treated, who wouldn't honor and value them. It's not easy to try to talk to folks about relationship issues, especially when it's their relationship and they didn't ask for any advice. But when we really care about people and maybe we can see some potential trouble coming that they don't seem to see, if we really love them, wouldn't we want to warn them? Wouldn't we want to at least give them something to think about? They're going to make the decision that they're going to make. But if we can maybe speak some words of wisdom to them, maybe we can remind them of how valuable they are 
and that they should never, ever settle for anyone who doesn't treat them with the utmost respect and kindness. Maybe that's all we need to do to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So if you liked this episode, be sure you check out some of the earlier ones that I've put some links for in the show notes. They're really similar to to today's topic. I think you would enjoy them. And also consider helping someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, that person of impact, by sharing this episode or maybe another favorite one that you've had. And it also helps new people to find out about The Unlovely Truth when you subscribe and give the podcast a five-star rating and a nice review. That really helps the algorithm push The Unlovely Truth out in front of more people so that we can share more stories and touch more lives. I really appreciate all you guys so, so much and how you help me do this. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 